Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Um, I still don't think it's really sunk in um, that it's been a full year since we canceled uh, our in-person liturgy. And, you know, while we greatly miss being with all of you in person, um, we are grateful that we have the technology to continue to gather together. And one of the opportunities we've had in our online format is being able to hear from people that are um, don't, don't live in Austin and those in other parts of the world, in fact. And so this morning, uh, we're extremely grateful uh, for our dear friend and theologian, James Allison, uh, who's joining us from Spain. Uh, earlier before a liturgy began, he gave us a brief history uh, lesson of the time changes in, in Europe, which is fascinating. Um, but we're grateful that he'll be opening up the scriptures with us today. Um, so welcome, James. Thank you very much indeed. And um, thank you very much for having me back. And it's a pleasure to be with you, my sisters and brothers in Boxpania. And indeed, it's just under a year since it was the last time that I was in Austin staying uh, staying with you, staying with the Minics, um at that time. And uh, I miss you and I'm longing to be able to come back. Anyhow, to today's gospel, to fill in from last time. You remember last Sunday, we read John's account of the cleansing of the temple and the question of what sort of sign was he producing? What did he mean by this? And he explained, if you knock the temple down, I will raise it up. It was something to do with something being destroyed and something being raised up, and he was referring to his body. And lots of discussion ensued. People didn't know what he meant. And he stayed around in Jerusalem for some time after this, and people tried to discuss with him what he meant. One of the people who came to discuss with him was Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a leading Pharisee. So let's just make a distinction here. Jesus had been, if you remember, in the, it was the Passover of the Jews, meaning of the Judahites, the uh, ideological party, if you like, that had reformed the Hebrew religion after the Babylonian exile and now dominated and controlled the liturgical centers. They'd made It was they who'd made the temple. Um, so that was, if you like, Jesus talking about the sign that he was for the temple crowd, for the cultic, the liturgical crowd. And here, it's one of the Pharisees. that These were the people who were not so much into the temple and all that. These were um, much more uh, strict uh, sola scriptura guys, if you like. These were the uh, assiduous disciples of Moses who followed the Torah, the law, not in our modern legal sense, but in the legally defined way of life sense that was how a good Jewish person understands uh, a Torah, that which was given by Moses as God's way of giving people a legally defined way of life. And so what they saw in Jesus was a teacher. Nicodemus speaks to him as a teacher. And in fact, just before the passage that we're looking at today, Nicodemus is a little bit baffled by what Jesus is about. He's trying to assess how, how they, how his crowd, how the Moses crowd, can understand the sign that Jesus is performing, what it means. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, after Nicodemus has 
not quite got what Jesus is talking about, being born from above, being born anew, uh, being dwelt in by the Spirit, so that people don't actually know where you're coming from because you're coming from somewhere unexpected. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? And Jesus answered him, most of our Bible translations say, are you a teacher of Israel? But actually, that's a mistranslation. It says quite clearly in Greek, I don't know why the Bible's, why the translators translate. It says quite clearly in Greek, are you the teacher of Israel? Jesus is obviously not meaning that Nicodemus in person is simply the singular teacher of Israel. He's referring to the mosaic cathedra, if you like, the mosaic teaching class, the teacher of Israel. He's saying, does the mosaic teaching of Israel not get how these things happen? And that's where we start. He uses an explanation from Moses to make his point to this teacher of Moses. But it's not curiously something about what Moses taught. It was something that Moses did. It's a rather curious incident. This is where our passage starts today. And perhaps you'd like to put the text on the screen so that people can follow it. It said, and just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Well, this is a strange little incident in Numbers 21. Just before it, um, Aaron has died. God told Moses and Aaron, I, I'm sorry, Aaron is not going to go into the uh, Holy Land. He's going to die. So go up a hill with him and he can die there. Before he dies, strip him of his priestly garments and pass them on to his son Eleazar. It's not good that uh, priestly garments should have contact with death. Uh, pass them to Eleazar, his son, and then leave him to die. So Aaron dies on top of the mountain. Pretty suspicious, really, if you think about it. But there we are. And the others all come down. They mourn Aaron for a bit. And then they carry on, uh, the people of Israel carry on their trek to the, to the promised land. But guess what? They fall into their usual bitching and moaning and complaining and wanting to go back to Egypt. And God gets cross with them. And he sends a poisonous serpent amongst them to bite them. Uh, it doesn't sound a very nice thing to do. And uh, there's a, probably a wordplay at work here because exactly the same word, poisonous serpent, can be translated as fiery seraph. Uh, and fiery seraph was one of the ways of referring to bad priests. In fact, a good deal of what's going on in the book of Numbers is, uh, if you like, an allegorical uh, account of uh, bad priests in the Second Temple period and how uh, the temple needed to be reformed. And here, the snakes bite the people, it's causing them uh, harm. This poison is doing the harm to them. And Moses prays to God, and God proposes to Moses that what he should do is to make a bronze serpent, lift it up, and anybody who sees the serpent. Uh, uh, and is aware, therefore, of God wanting to set people free, uh, should uh, should look at the serpent and they will live. Okay, so this is a strange, a strange little tale, but it's one which goes to the heart of something which is slightly mysterious for us. But if we think about it, not that mysterious, which is that poison and remedy are often the same thing. At the moment, we are all are keen to get vaccinations, those of us who haven't had them yet. And vaccinations are, of course, 
poison that's become a remedy. In other words, uh, the, the doctors, in this one sense, fool our bodies into making the reaction that they're going to have to the poison so that we are protected against it when it comes. Um, the ancient Greek word pharmakos can mean remedy and it can mean poison. Um, it's a uh, it's quite a common understanding throughout the world that the poison and the remedy are the same thing. And here we have a classic example of that. And this is the sign that Jesus gives of himself. He's saying that the remedy is going to be the same as the poison. It's going to look like the poison. What is the poison in this case? Well, hinted at by it being bad priests. Poison is sacrifice. What is going to be the remedy? Something that looks exactly like sacrifice, but in fact undoes it from within. So he says that's what the sign is going to be. The sign is going to be as Moses lifted up the serpent, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. In other words, you're going to see me raised up, which in John's Gospel always refers to the cross. And that's going to be the equivalent of Moses lifting up the serpent that whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, may have eternal life. And then the evangelist explains, and with a number of key words. Let's look at this, because this is quite delicate. Here our translations always read, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Perhaps the most famous verse of the Bible. Please notice it contains something like a mistranslation. Because for us, the word so, when we say, for God so loved the world, that tends to mean, I think, for most of us, it's saying something about the emotional power of God. For God so loved the world, he had such a passion for the world that he gave his only son. But in fact, uh, that's not what the Greek says. The Greek uh, is a demonstrative use of so. For God loved the world in this way, to wit, he gave his only son. Do you see, it's a slightly different sense. He is about to explain something, set it out. He's not making a point about God's emotional power, which it's wonderful for us to think about, but it's not actually the point here. Uh, his point is, this is the pattern by which God is going to save the world that he gave his only son. Now here, the word monogenes and the word, the word loved immediately calls to mind, or would have called to mind for them, uh, the Abraham sacrificing Isaac story. Because there, the words only begotten or only and beloved son are interchangeable. In the Hebrew, you get uh, only, and in the Greek, you get beloved. So Jesus is talking here about the fulfillment of what Abraham saw when he told Isaac, God will provide for sacrifice. And, and incidentally, if you read the one John, not John's gospel, but the first epistle to John version of the same line, he then goes on to say this is about expiation. 
he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. So there he's saying, remember that uh, serpent thing? The people were perishing because of the serpents. But now anyone who sees the sacrificed one lifted up and believes that this was done out of love need not perish. They're not run by sacrifice any longer. They may have eternal life. They're going to start to be able to enter into the project of God's future living. We have to be very careful with words like eternal life because some people think, oh, that means that's just the opposite of our life here. There's downstairs life, which is where we are now, and upstairs life, which is eternal life. And this is how to get from downstairs life to upstairs life. Actually, it's much more positive than that, but may have eternal life, meaning may start living the life of God now. That's what happens once you start to become aware that God entered into our poisonous sacrificial world in order to undo it from within. And once we see that that's what he's doing, we start to be able to live without being run by the need to make ourselves good by casting others out, by the need to have a sacred other that makes us feel good. We start, therefore, to be able to recognize our similarity with each other, love each other, and begin to create new possibilities for each other. And that's part of what's the gift of the life of the age, the life of God's age, is promised to us. Can we have the next bit of the of the text? So you know he repeats this. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world. And this why is this going to be important? Because some people uh, understand Jesus' death as something uh, that simply stands as a rebuke to people. You did this to me. I'm angry. Whereas Jesus is saying, no, the whole point of my entering into the poison world of your sacrifices was precisely not to judge you for it. I know that that's what you're inclined to do. I know that your way of creating goodness is to join together with others like yourselves and hate on somebody and cast them out and then think of yourselves as good. And then when anybody challenges uh, your goodness in doing that, you get allergically angry with them and cover up your crime of casting them out and say that it was holy and sacred and you needed to do it. This is what why sacrifice is the religion of cover-up and why it's so easy for us in all of our secular living to fall back into the ancient pattern of goodness over against another, belonging at the expense of a wicked other. And this is referred, this in our modern world is to do with racial problems, uh, sexual orientation problems, transphobia, any number of ways in which belonging becomes a sacred that causes us to cover up our violence against other people. And it's in the midst of that that Jesus occupies the space of the one that we're inclined to cast out and says, I did not come into the world to condemn you. I'm showing you what you're doing, not so as to rip you another one, but just to say to you, okay, Let's see if we can do better than this. I'm forgiving you. 
to those who believe in him are not condemned. In other words, once you understand that he's entering into that place of sacrifice as a gift to show God's love, saying, yeah, I'm doing this out of love for you. This is not, this is not an out to get you. I'm doing this because I want you to be able to move on. So those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already. In other words, if what you see is another sacrifice, another person cast out, then all you see is someone bad that makes you good. They're condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The name here means uh, not simply the name Jesus. It's the the whole dynamic of coming towards us. The name of God is the dynamic presence of the Son of God. The name of Jesus coming towards us is what we would now call the Holy Spirit. Uh, It's the presence of the project unleashed by Jesus occupying the space of sacrifice and undoing it for for us. And this is judgment. This is discernment that the light has come into the world, that's to say the one who is undoing sacrifice from within has come into the world and showed what's really going on, false accusations, false belonging, fake goodness. Light has come into the world and people love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, they didn't want to let go of that way of doing things. Sacred belonging at the expense of wicked other. Sacred belonging at the expense of wicked other, that's the old way of doing things. That means that you're justified in your violence. Your cover-up is necessary and good. People love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light. In other words, they actually depend on cover-up. Cover-up makes them feel good. But what is being offered here is the loving undoing of cover-up. Those who do what is true, that's to say those of us who have the privilege of undergoing being forgiven by the one who is coming into the world. Those who do what is true come to the light. In other words, we allow our cover-up, the way we've been involved in casting others out so as to be good. We allow that to be undone. We allow ourselves to be forgiven. And as we allow ourselves to be forgiven, we become able to see others like ourselves. We become able to create the new reality of sisterhood, brotherhood, siblinghood together, which opens us out into new possibilities of living as humans, which is what gives glory to the creator, the kind of deeds that give glory to God. So this is Jesus answering, if you like, a teacher of Moses. It's not just the good or bad deeds. It's the presence in your midst of the sign of the one who undoes the sacrificial mechanism and therefore makes it possible for deeds to come into the light and so to be seen that they're done in God. This is the sign that Jesus is bringing out for us so that we may celebrate it fully at Easter. In the name of the Father, and the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.